Hey everyone, it's Scott. I'm back. I hope you're having a great October or whatever month you happen to be listening in. So about today's film, when I clicked on Fake It So Real earlier this year, I had really no idea what to expect. If I'm to be honest, I really didn't expect much. I probably didn't even expect to make it 10 minutes into this film. I sample a lot of documentaries on Tubi TV, and most of them, frankly, they just don't grab me. Also, Fake It So Real's subject matter was pro wrestling. And the only wrestling I've ever watched, frankly, are the uh, stray milliseconds when I've clicked on the wrong channel. But this movie had a strangely mesmerizing effect on me. I slipped gradually under its influence in the first 10 minutes. I was drawn deeper and deeper, moment by moment. I went from skeptical to curious to attentive to wrapped, and by the end, I was a complete and utter fanboy. Fake It So Real was released a while ago, way back in 2011. It follows a tiny band of wrestlers in a small town in North Carolina. These wrestlers, to varying degrees, hunger for the spotlight of big-time pro wrestling. They're honing their craft in the ambitiously named Millennium Wrestling Federation. This is an operation so tiny that it pays no salaries, and its minuscule ticket sales cover only the most basic expenses, like the $250 that goes to the American Legion Hall, where the wrestlers repeatedly erect and then tear down a small wrestling arena. Fake It So Real focuses on a tribe of people I don't know well, and if I'm to be honest again, people that I've never really bothered to know. Yes, the wrestlers in this film are what you'd expect, unsophisticated, sophomoric, often politically incorrect, but they're also what you wouldn't expect, introspective and vulnerable, sometimes insecure. In this respect alone, Fake It So Real is kind of a perfect film. You could say it has a puncher's chance to change the hearts and minds of city folks like me, people who don't really understand America's rural culture, and who, as a consequence, run the risk of misjudging it. Today I talked to the creative force behind Fake It So Real, director Robert Green. Since this film was released, Green has gone on to great success in the documentary film industry, most notably with his award-winning Netflix film, Procession. But 12 years ago, Green was simply a hustling filmmaker with no money and only his instincts to guide him. I've got to tell you, this is probably the most enjoyable conversation I've had on the podcast. He and I cover a lot of ground in this conversation, from the mechanics of building trust with a marginalized group, to the socio-political impact of Trump on filmmakers, to the future of journalism and documentary film. I think you'll really enjoy this one. So, here we go. So, Robert, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So this is a really delightful film. I did not expect to like the characters as much as I did. And I'm wondering, how did you become aware of these amateur wrestlers kind of in the middle of North Carolina? Well, my previous film was made with my sister, Katie, uh, Katie with an I. And then basically we had very little funding uh, to, to make anything. And I just wanted to take out a camera and go make something. Uh, so the the way I met them was through my cousin. My cousin is Chris Solar, who in the film is one of the main characters. And I had been talking to Chris for years and years as a lifelong wrestling fan myself. And obviously Chris is a wrestling fan. We had talked about how, how do we make a film together for, uh, you know, a bit of time. 
And then when, when Katie with and I had the minor bit of success or got seen by a few people, what, what was next? Well, I was ready to make my wrestling film. And so I called Chris and, and we had started having discussions about the, the millennium wrestling federation, which is the group that he was with at the time and started getting on the phone with outlaw pit, all of them. And, and started talking about what it looks like to actually follow uh, a week in the life of, of the federation. And we didn't know Gabe would become one of the main characters at all until sort of getting there in that first day of filming. And he sort of emerged as as documentary gold in that way that he had a built in story. You know, if we're going to film for a week, a built in story is very helpful in uh, that story being that he was the underdog sort of, you know, looking to break into the group Um and he also, you know, was a gift in the sense that he talked a lot, you know, everybody else was a little bit, you know, reticent to, to, to talk about the business, uh, wrestling business in a certain way. They were a little re- reticent to open up my cameras, even though I think you see eventually everybody kind of opens up, but Gabe just started talking immediately. And that was like, okay, well, here we go. We're going to follow this guy. Cause he will not shut up, uh, in the best way possible. I have a hard time believing you got that much like intimacy and in-depth understanding of these guys in a week? Was there filming on either side of that week or was it really just the one week itself? The only stuff that we did not get within that week was um, there's sort of a, and you can kind of plainly see it. There's, there's intro sections for each of the characters where Chris kind of, Chris Solar kind of breaks down the different guys and we got footage to help, um, make that clear. We got that like about a month later. Um, and then, and then we also filmed these sort of like interim, like middle sort of dream sequence kind of shots. We filmed that outside of the week, but the narrative itself, the sort of the, each of the scenes that are, that are, uh, you know, the training and the hanging out and the talking about, you know, characters and the build up to the match and the pre-match and then the match itself, that's all within a week. So, but but it's you know it's an interesting sort of philosophy of how to make a film. You you don't have we we don't have very much money. If you don't have very much money, you can think of it this way. This this scenario worked pretty well for our previous film, Katie with an Eye. It was th- that was three days, but we also used footage that I had filmed of Katie when she was a little kid and and stuff like that. But the but the the driving point, which I was really fascinated by at, by this point in my career, was like thinking about one set event. And just immersing intimately for all these hours in in between the beginning and that one set event being the payoff and the climax of the film. And it kind of allows things, you know, um, I think the like the very next week, uh, the guy Hojo got in a fight with someone in the crowd, basically, and got I think he went to jail. I mean, it was like a temporary thing, but like he got in a it was a real nasty situation that could have been the film, right? But imagine if we had filmed for a month or two months or a year, then all these little glimpses into their lives become the film, right? And you don't have the sort of living with them sensation that you do while watching the movie. You know, there's some of those conversations just play out over minutes and minutes and minutes at a time. And that's because that's the footage that we have and we're leaning into making those conversations work. And so we were very excited about what that created um, in terms of how you watch the film itself. Uh, It allows for this sort of immediate intimacy um, that, uh, 
yeah, that that just feels different. And it, and we'd seen it work with the previous film and it worked here. So the idea there is if you had filmed it over the course of a year, the personalities would have averaged out in a way that maybe bled them of some of their immediacy. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, I think you you film for a year, you, you're going to get a lot of story. I mean, the drama of Gabe's life after we started filming was way more intense than the drama while we were filming. But it's a, but then but then those intimate moments of just like sheer uh, behavioral traits that come out just with the with the immediacy and the directness you know, eventually, you, you, you know, the ins, your instinct might tell you, oh, we got to cut that down and lead into lean into the drama. Well, I, I kind of like how the drama feels um, very human in the film uh, because the because the you know, the characters and the, the costumes and the makeup and all the stuff that they do in the world of pro wrestling you know, that's so over the top that you don't need the over the top drama. You actually, it quite, it works much better to say, to have, you know, uh, the more subtle drama play out and ever, and the entire film being about the behavior of the people on screen. Um, and that is where the film gets complex and in the film where the film remains very human, I think. Yeah. I, I think the drama is very organic. Uh, it's a feeling of how much these guys care. There's, like good nervousness going into that show and they just really want the show to be great and they're so invested in it and that's the drama that seems to work really well for the for the context it allows just the sheer idea of it putting on a show with that many you know that many fans that kind of size crowd for that with those resources all that stuff it allows the the directness of that idea to come through rather than it be about, you know, a year in the life or something like that. Right. So like, so it allows the, the idea of wrestling as an escape, the idea of wrestling as an art form, the idea of wrestling as community theater, the idea of, of all that to, to, to be the subject of the film, which is what we were ultimately, you know, most excited about. So whether it was exactly a week or not, it wasn't a lot of time that you spent with these guys. And what I found so striking is these guys are surprisingly sweet and sensitive. And I just can't imagine that was something that would have been super easy for a filmmaker to bring out in that somewhat truncated amount of time. How did you create the space with a camera in the room to get them to go there? Well, I, I'm a wrestling fan and um, there is a, there is an, when you, when, when you, um, if you're a wrestler and you give a re another pro wrestler, a handshake, you, the, the way you do it is, um, you don't, you know, most people might think two big, you know, burly pro wrestlers, when they shake each other's hands, they may, you know, grab it and do like some Donald Trump garbage or something, you know, um, when, when you're trying to show how strong and cool you are. In fact, the, you know, the, the traditional wrestling handshake is as gentle as possible, uh, as, and, and the reason for that is, is that, you know, a wrestler wants to show another wrestler that they're going to take care of them in the ring. You can trust me. You can trust that I'm, that there's a, there's a peace here. There's a calmness. There's a, there's a sweetness even to use your word, I think. Uh, and, and that's, so actually, you know, I think Pitt, in the film, the big, bald, scary guy says it best. Like it's therapy for, for these guys, you know, um, it's, and, and now, you know, having shot the film over a decade ago, I, I believe that even more intensely today than I did then. 
Um, these guys are, you know, they're pretty gentle guys in a lot of ways. They're, they're, they're artists. They would never use the word artist. I mean, it's sort of, you see it and they're talking around themselves as artists the whole time, but they're just artists who are passionate about an idea. And, and so they're, you know, they're coming from a place. I think the perception of pro wrestlers is a lot of times they're, you know, straight out of a bar fight into the ring when in fact it's more likely to say straight out of the community theater into the ring or straight out of like painting something into the ring. Right. It's just a, a totally different kind of thing. So to answer your question, it, it's, it's approaching them, uh, you know, with some knowledge already that what they're perceived to be is not what they really are. The aggression that they show in the ring is a performance and you should know that if you're going to try to talk to them as, you know, collaborators, you know, in the, in making, making of the film, you know? Um, and I think I just, I just got, I had the language down. I, th this is something I've been watching wrestling my whole life and I'd still watch wrestling. I'm a, I'm passionate about the art form actually. Um, it's one of my favorite forms of art period. And so I just kind of, I feel like I kind of knew that language going in and, and then it just, you know, in general, it's, you know, I teach documentary here. I'm, I'm, you know, talking to you from my office at the University of Missouri, where we have the Murray Center for Documentary Journalism, and I teach documentary. But it is the one thing I, I am very upfront about with students. It's like, I can't, I can't teach you how to talk to people. I can't teach you how to open up, get people to open up. I can't teach you how to treat people with respect. And uh, when they're, you know, putting themselves out there in front of the camera, you that comes from trial and error. It comes from messing up. It comes from insulting people. You know, there was a moment where I, I said I used the word fake. You know, the, the word fake is a very, very problematic word in the world of pro wrestling. It's not fake. It's staged. You, you know, you hear them say that in the film. And and they were pretty pissed off at me. And I, you know, had to talk, I had to explain to them what, why I was using that word to try to charge the film with this, with this language that, you know, comes from the outside a little bit. And, and eventually they understood, but you know, it, that it was a mistake how I talked to them and they were quick to point out that it was a mistake. So there was a lot of trial and error, but I think the more that you embrace the sort of um, the human aspect of, of, you know, Hey, look, I can mess up <laughs> and uh, sorry, I said it that way. I didn't, I didn't intend to say it that way. You think just think general respect, general, like these, these are guys that don't get respected a lot, frankly, for what they are passionate about. I'm a wrestling fan. I get it. You know, I, I, I before fake it. So real came out, I was a closet wrestling fan. And one of the great gifts of the film is that it gave me this sort of platform to talk about pro wrestling in the real world. And it makes me very, very happy. But that sort of tells you right there, well, what do you have to do to earn their respect and earn their trust? Well, that's, you know, treat them with respect and, 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 uh, you know, that'll get you a long way, I think. So you tell your students that you can't teach them how to interact with people. Uh, but clearly th this is something you, you've made observations about your own journey from, I guess, not as good to much better. What, what have you learned about just generally over the course of multiple documentaries about what are the integral pieces to getting people to relax, open up and trust you? Honestly, to me, it's a, it's a couple, there's a couple of key elements. One, the most important one is enthusiasm um, for an idea. So I, that's my best 
trait probably is that I am really excited. You know, I'm only doing a film because I'm excited. And the, by the time I'm talking to the people who appear on screen, the participants on screen, by the time I'm talking to them, I've been thinking about this project for a really long time. Right. And so just sharing ideas and sort of leaning into the idea that you can empower people with information, meaning I can say to them, yeah, it's going to be one week in the life and we're going to have these intimate moments. And I don't know if it's going to work, but this is the idea. And maybe, so when I ask you this kind of question, what I mean is this. So think about it that way. So you can kind of imagine the film yourself and just empowering people to be collaborators, empowering people to understand, okay, I'm in a movie, you know, it's, it's, I don't play the sort of games that like, you know, I, I teach in the journalism school. Uh, you know, I, I don't think of myself as a journalist first and foremost, even though I think the work I do is in the big tent of journalism, certainly, but I don't, I don't care about sort of being objectively distant from the subjects in the film and the, you know, I think of them mostly as participants in the film. Right. I, I, I want to empower them to use this, whatever we're doing together to say what they want to say. And that can mean all kinds of things. So that can mean like working with Pitt in his, in his, you know, house. And there's all these like pictures of, um, you know, uh, women on the, on the, and his workout, uh, room. And he can be like, I'm a little worried. This looks a little funny. Well, let me show you this shot. It's actually a great shot and it'll make people laugh. And he's like, yeah, that is pretty funny. He's like, yeah. So I know you're a little worried about how this makes you look, but trust me, if, especially if you come off as sweet as I know you will, there'll be a great energy and dichotomy. And he's like, okay, I get it. I get it. Like, you know, so I'm, so I'm not, there's no gotcha moment. There's no, um, it's not about setting people up. Now that gets really complicated, right? So, uh, you know, there, there, there's a scene where Jay prep, the guy with a very, very big, uh, but, um, uh, you know, you can call it a lot of things that will, will stick to, butt for this podcast, uh, he's got a large, butt, uh, and he, he says something that's racist in the film. And we talked a lot about that. He's like, you know, I, I regret that being in there. And I was like, well, look, I, I regret you saying it to me because clearly you thought it, it was okay to say that to me. And, and he was like, yeah, I guess I didn't think about it, you know, and we had a lot of talks around it. And I showed a, a cut of the movie uh, to the guys before, you know, as I was editing, it was a rough cut of the film. And he says this film, he says this line about, you know, uh, some, I don't even want to repeat it. It's the most racist thing in the film. And, you know, uh, I was like, he was like, he immediately stood up and said, you need to take that out. I told you to take that out. And I said, well, you didn't tell me to take that out. I thought we were going to have a discussion and it might've been taken out of the film. If not for the fact that Zane Riley and Hojo stood up and were like, you're absolutely not taking that out. And I was like, well, why? And they were more, they weren't really going to go into it, but their point I think was, because the South is racist and you need to so show that part that that language is so casual there. But, but, you know, we had discussed it. So like that kind of discussion where we, we, I, I go in all in on sort of like really dissecting with the guys, what it means to have said what you said and trying to like process it with them. And that's not always, I didn't always do that. You know, like the film is full of homophobic language that, you know, makes me cringe, uh, made me cringe then makes me cringe even more today. 
and and we didn't say, hey guys, you know, maybe you should think about the language you're using. If this film was made in 2022, I would have said that, you know, and and maybe what's changed for me in the last decade is I just said to you seconds ago that there's no gotcha moments in in the film, but as we're observing them, you know, sort of spew this homophobic language. Now, I think there's a big difference between the casual homophobia and actually what Chris Solar's character, the the Solar is gay chant, which I think is actually quite complicated um, in the way that pro wrestling seems to be simple on one level, but is actually quite complicated. Um, but, you know, if the film was made today, I may have stopped them and said, okay, let's do something with the fact that you guys are just casually spewing this homophobia or uh, homophobic language around me and the camera. Like you should probably think about that. So in that way, I've definitely grown as a communicator because I don't, because it, that part doesn't, it makes me pretty unhappy to hear that language and to hear the fact that we're not intervening in some way into that language. It's a sort of change in philosophy I've had over the past decade of, about, you know, what it means to be filming people as they're, as they're talking to each other. Uh, the first 10 minutes, maybe even the first 20 minutes, if you're a city viewer of a certain persuasion, you might look at these guys because it was filmed in 2011, I believe, and think these are a bunch of future Trump voters. And yet, as the film proceeds, your affection for them is obvious. And then I think in turn, that helps transform them into these very layered, uh, sympathetic figures and you see them in this broader context. And I'm curious, like, how did your idea of them evolve as you went through the film? I don't know that it did in the, in the way that you might be thinking. I, I come from working class white background, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a white filmmaker. Um, and I grew up in, not in Lincolnton, but in Monroe is one of the places I grew up. And, Currituck County, North Carolina is another place that I grew up. Um, uh, the sort of inner city Philadelphia in a, in a public housing is another place I grew up. I grew up in several different places, but working class white <laughs> uh, spaces are where I, you know, and m many mixed races spaces as well. But I, I, I didn't have to um, have an ev evolution of a, of a understanding of them. I knew that yeah, these are guys that I do not necessarily agree with politically, but you know, the, and this is well before the sort of um, rash of like post twenty sixteen Trump voter sort of dissections of of you know what did we misunderstand about the white working class you know uh, which is on every it seemed like was on every you know major publication like the New York Times or New York Times Magazine or whatever uh, in the, in the wake of 2016. And I agree with the people who say, you know, we've overstated all of that. We we've, and in a way we've ended up like only, uh, sort of deepening the divisions by othering the idea of, of what it means to be working class in this country and what it means to be white working class in this country. So I didn't have to like go through some big transformation with those guys. I knew those guys. I grew up with those guys, right? That that's that's my they're 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 literally my family. Chris is literally my family. I edited this from my home in in I think I was living at the time. I guess I was living upstate by the time I was editing this film. I can't remember, but probably I shot it at least while we were still living in Brooklyn. Like I was in that exact you know city liberal space that you're talking about, and was very very excited 
to be, you know, showing complex Southern white characters and not exclusively white. I don't want to, you know, erase Hojo from the, from the uh, equation because, you know, he, he's an important part of the film. And, and that was a goal. Uh, absolutely. And, and the, the goal of sort of showing pro wrestling in the light that we did echoes that goal. So it's not just white working class or working class, you know, mostly white working class. It's not just, um, it's not just the idea that they, that they are artists, even though they won't use that language. It's the, it's the connection between those two things. One of the biggest problems we have in this country is a lack of imagination for how other people live. And in some ways, a lack of imagination of how we live in our own life. And, and to me, movies can help recreate those bonds, even with the highly structured, highly um, manipulated, because all movies are highly manipulated. Obviously, I edited the footage. Um, highly manipulated version of, of, of events and version of reality to where you can, you can, you can sense the love and the, the, um, the complexity and the humanity in people that you might have that immediate knee jerk opinion of. All I know is that I consider that a political act. I consider all image making to be political. And, and in this case, it was very active. We, I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew exactly that we were going into you know, a place where uh, a lot of people wouldn't go, Lincoln to North Carolina. And we were listening to people a lot of people wouldn't listen to. And now, a decade later, that has even extra resonance. Um, I, I can't say that everybody would watch that. I, I can't imagine being uh, a viewer who is gay watching this film and, and what some of that language might do to hurt the that person, you know? Um, that's a privilege I have is not, you know, being heterosexual means I don't know what those, those, uh, some of those words, how they might sting. But I do hope that a viewer, any viewer will see the complexity of, of some of this language in, you know, and also the most homoerotic uh, art form <laughs> outside of, you know, uh, drag, you know, that you can imagine. Pro wrestling is drag, basically. Pro wrestling is, you know, uh, one of my, I can't even remember who said it. it was like a legendary someone. It might have been like Shawn Michaels or one of these legendary pro wrestlers who said something like, "It's wrestling isn't homoerotic; it's homosexual." <laughs> so it's so for me, and I laugh because so you you see these guys performing this masculinity where they're saying all these, you know, hurtful, horrible things, and then they're getting into the ring and and playing dress up and pretending to fight each other and. And, you know, doing this homoerotic theater, basically. So to me, like, I love, I knew that we knew that complexity was going to be interesting, at least to watch working class, white, mostly uh, limited viewpoints on the world, most likely you can guess, right? And, and, and then with this language that they're using and some of the images that they're using and then the complexity of getting in the ring and the, the the homoeroticism, but also just the genuine, you know, uh, take out all the sort of sexuality to it, like the care that they have for each other, the love that they have for each other, the passion that they have for their art form, the fact that they're doing it. it you know, we always thought of this film very much as a metaphor for independent filmmaking. You know, uh, it, it, they were no different than us. They were no different than us. We were trying to make our scrappy piece of artwork, and they're trying to make their scrappy piece of artwork. So, yeah, so th those things that you that you that you um, rightly point out, I 
I, we were aware of from the beginning, but it, a lot of it just comes from me fitting in more or less. I might be a little bit nerdier than some of those guys, but I still fit in. Yeah. I can't help but wonder like what this document would have been like. And I use the document in the historical context. If the film had been made in 2017 or 2018, have you ever given that some thought about what it would have meant and how you might've approached it differently? I, I recently had a discussion with Chris who really, Chris Solar, who really expressed some regret about the language that he used. Um, and, and I tried to reassure him, you know, I actually think it's really quite complicated. You're, you know, the solar is gay chant is an expression of something very dark and you're conjuring this in the space. And that complexity is amazing to watch. You're playing the bad guy and allowing them to the, the audience that is to sort of, you know, uh, express this horrible hatred your way, but you are embodying it and encouraging it and creating it and almost exposing it and bringing it into the light where it, it can show its face. Right. That sort of kind of thing I think would be gone by 2017 post Trump. You, you know, I, I think people are more emboldened to say, you know, insensitive things. They're also less emboldened to say insensitive things. I think people are more wary of cameras. I think the perception of me with my glasses and bald head in that space um, would be a lot different. You know, you're here to expose and you're here to do these kinds of things to make us look bad or something rather than embracing the sort of complexity, which I think everyone was more or less aware of. I think that would be gone in, in post-Trump America, right? Like I think there would be so much sensitivity about performing an identity and um, maybe going further in the direction of some of the hate, most hateful things, or maybe absolutely hiding the language of hate and, you know, and being aware of the power of, of a camera to, you know, put you out there in the world or something. So, it, it, you know, it's a sad loss, actually. We were embracing the sort of complexity of how, frankly, how bad they looked sometimes and but how beautiful it was at the same time. I, I think that's more difficult to make uh, in in this era, um, even just after Trump was elected. And I and I also think like, I mean, because I mean, he obliterated complexity in some ways. That man, that you know, inexplicably winning the presidency forced us to choose sides um, in a way that is is politically um, understandable and and in some ways anti-human. I would have gone down there as a non-Trump Trump voter. They and they might have been there. There would have certainly been a lot of Trump voters in that group of wrestlers, and then certainly in the crowd. And that's what how we would have been defined as you know e either or. And and we certainly were not defined that way back in 2010, 2011 when we shot the film. I mean, like cut to the one of the most glorious nights of our lives, which was Rooftop Films in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, we basically Rooftop Films is an incredible organization based in New York, and they they programmed Fake It So Real for their season, which I think was playing in 2011. And they uh, they we built a ring and we played the film outside and several of the wrestlers got to come and uh, very hip, very liberal Williamsburg, Brooklyn was chanting solar is gay at the top of their lungs. 600 people 
you know, maybe not everybody was chanting that, but they were having a lot of fun with the insane, ridiculous stupidity and, and, and I think complexity of pro wrestling that night. I don't think that happens in this, in this era. I think it's, it's cringy. It's like, it's eye rolling. It's, you know, but it's also, you know, fun and campy. And I, and I use that um, word campy with all due respect to the art form of camp, which I very much appreciate. And as a straight person do not feel comfortable, you know, sort of talking about camp as an art form. It's not my, it's not my business to talk about it, but I'm very inspired by it. And I love the sort of gross complexity that can come out in these situations. You put a camera on these guys, 2017, it's going to be a different ball game. It's going to be, it, I don't think the film exists. Also me as a filmmaker, I, you know, once, once Trump is elected, a lot of that complexity that I'm, I've spent the last few minutes talking about how great it is. A lot of that complexity becomes, you know, uh, beside the point, you know, um, when you're fighting for the identity of this country, which we now have been since subtlety does and should get thrown out the window in a lot of ways. So when I'm talking about, maybe I intervene into their language a little bit more. That's what I'm talking about. Like, you know, maybe I have to have a, maybe the film is completely different. Maybe it's not about hanging back and watching them sort of speak in the language that is they're comfortable with in order to make some sort of more emotional points or deeper points or revealing points or whatever you want to say. Maybe I have to step in and say, Hey, that's not, that's not language I want to get out in the world anymore. And it's, and so what do we do with that? You know, I don't think I'd scrap the film, but I'd certainly be having some, some tough conversations and uh, you know, I would probably do something with those tough conversations. So the film looks completely different in in the era that we're in now. So I'd love to ask you about what I'm going to call the mechanics of intimate filmmaking. So you're in bedrooms and living rooms with these guys and they're really opening up and revealing a lot as much as I've seen in any documentary. And I watch literally hundreds of documentaries. Tell me about the mechanics of the camera, the crew. How do you make all of that disappear so that it's just you and a subject? Can you tell me about how that played out in this film? So the, the crew was literally uh, me, um, celebrated cinematographer, Sean Price Williams, who had, had only shot a few things at that point. Um, and my brother, uh, who was basically driving us around and keeping a little bit of a distance. And that was it. I mean, the intimacy that you feel is that basically it was, you know, and Sean is an extraordinary, he shot most, I mean, he probably shot like 60% of the film and I probably shot 40%. And he is an extraordinary cinematographer. He also comes from a rural background. You know, he grew up in Maryland and in in sort of rooms and and spaces that are very much like the working class spaces that I came from. And fit in same way. Like we just, you know, we we just fit in. And and it's not we just don't think of it as disappearing. You know, it's it's never that's never the goal for us. It's never like, okay, we're going to pretend we're not here. It's like that doesn't make sense to me. I'm, you know, I'm going to film you while you do this. Okay. Sounds good. You know? Um, and then, and then that allows for more conversation. And, and some of that conversation in this film is not in there. Most of that conversation is in, is not in there. As my filmmaking career has developed, some of the conversations that go on um, 
you know, sort of, I guess, behind closed doors or, 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 you know, sort of behind the camera between me and the people who are participants in the film, uh, I, I have actively added those conversations to, to the process. Right. Um, and, and they're, and they're less visible in this film, certainly. So that's another thing that's changed over the years is, is getting exciting about, you know, wanting to have those conversations be part of the film itself. So, um, but yeah, it's not a, it's not really about disappearing. It's about engaging. It's about elevating. It's about, um, sort of embracing, uh, levels of, of performance, levels of complexity, levels of, uh, presentation and working with the people on screen. And, you know, so I really drop a lot of the, um, the rhetoric that often surrounds documentary filmmaking about becoming invisible and things like that. I just don't buy it. It's just not, it's just not true. And, and it's not interesting to me. So somebody that would shoot strict verite would say you turn on the camera and then you disappear. It sounds like you're saying that there's a way to get to the same truth, but through more of an interactive process. So can you walk me through a little bit of how it seems like you're a little bit more interactive with your subjects. How do those conversations play out and how do you do that without actually orchestrating reality? Well, in this film, first of all, um, you know, it, like I said before, it kind of evolved certainly over the years of making, making films. But uh, in this film, the, the biggest thing to say from the first and foremost is these guys are performers, right? So, there were moments where I thought, and I still think, and I, he'll never tell me, Outlaw's whole thing about like the cyst and that, how he's not going to make the match, that that was totally made for the camera. I couldn't confirm it, but I, I know that during the making of the film, they did an entire fake storyline, which is not in the movie, which I almost I really wanted it to be in the movie, where Zane and Outlaw got in a big argument um, about the booking of the show and they did a whole thing, which they, you know, in wrestling terms, it, they worked me. They, they, in, in wrestling, there is a shoot and there's a work. Okay. So maybe that'll be helpful language to talk about. Um, a work is when something is staged and a shoot is when it's legit. Almost everything in wrestling is some combination of work and shoot, right? So that was a work, you know, it's a worked match, but that was a shoot punch, which led to a worked angle between two guys because he shot, he shoot punched him in the face, et cetera. You can imagine how complex it gets, it gets right off the bat. So I think documentary has a lot more in common with the, the uh, idea of work and shoot than most people want to discuss. Right. So for me, I just embraced what was already there with these guys. And then the, my next film is a film called actress. My next film is about an actor. My next film after that is, is, you know, working with, you know, people to stage something in Bisbee, Arizona. And the next film after that is working to stage scenes again with procession. So we have very much developed this uh, language, which, um, but the, but the first and foremost thing we're thinking is these guys are, these guys are performers. They're aware of the camera. They're aware of themselves as, as, as characters that are being portrayed, you know, how much of that is so how much of uh is a work or a shoot in the conversation on the the um the the porch when they're giving Gabe advice about his character okay they're very aware of the of the camera they're trying to be funny they're trying to make fun of him they are very aware that he is digging himself into a hole 
and he's being very entertaining and digging himself in the hole. And they're very aware of our cameras capturing that. But that is no different than any documentary scene ever recorded in my mind. The difference is, is we're trying to make you as aware as possible. Like, oh yeah, these guys are, are winking and nodding to the camera, um, even if in a subtle way in, in Fake It So Real. But, th- but they're doing so, uh, to, which expresses a sort of more deep, deeper truth, basically, you know, and um, to, to sort of erase their performance or erase their role as performers def- does not take us closer to truth. It takes us farther from truth. Um, I think a lot of documentary films, I, I, you know, and these are some of my heroes, you know, like Frederick Wiseman is a hero that I adore. And I have had the incredible privilege of talking to him in various formats and settings about these things. And at least one time he claimed to have watched a couple of my films, which still blows my mind. But, you know, I'll say, you know, well, you're great at directing performance and he'll get super offended because part of part of him, you know, just still clings to this idea that like I show up and I become invisible and they're not performing. And my point is, no, no, they're definitely performing. They're just good performers rather than bad performers. And you've done a good job of making them feel comfortable. And also, you know, the reason why you're clinging to this is because you want to straddle the line between being an artist and being a journalist. And the moment you start talking about performance, you can't claim journalism, which is how you, you know, Frederick Wiseman and many of our, you know, older heroes, how they got access was by claiming, you know, this is for the public good that you let me go film this high school or whatever. So when they start talking about performance, they get super weirded out because then does that mean it's inauthentic or does that mean it's staged or does that mean it's um, faked in some way? And my point is, no, you're filming in welfare you know, one of the great, greatest Frederick Wiseman films, you're filming people perform the, the, the two sides of, of the, the desk and the welfare office. You're filming people performing, being the, the person who's trying to get welfare and you're being, uh, or, you know, state help, city help. And you're, you're filming the person who's trying to regulate and the state help and the city help and the federal help. Uh, and you're watching two people perform two very specific kind of roles in, in society. And what's so fascinating about the film is watching them perform those roles. So I feel like I've just embraced that fully. And so, um, you know, they're aware that we're aware and we're aware that they're aware. And in Fake It's So Real, that, we, that didn't require any, any interruption in saying, okay, so you did this, but let's talk about your performance here. We, they, they knew that this whole thing in some ways was a work. They also knew in some ways the whole thing was a shoot. And I think that that's actually how documentary filmmaking works. Um, so it was a little bit of a primordial stage for me personally, this being my third feature documentary at the time. But uh, but I, I stick to that. You know, I I think we we and that's a, a a way that you you talk about like sort of participation and empowerment um that acknowledging that for them the performers on on camera and you know you acknowledging it and you acknowledging that they acknowledge it is a way to give them some power you know i know you guys are making these jokes for the camera that doesn't make it any less real it just makes it what happens when you when a camera shows up, you know, like this, this, this conversation outside uh, on the porch is not a conversation that's happening without a camera. It's a conversa- conversation that's happening with a camera, period. 
So I've also seen Actress and Kate plays Christine. And try as I might, I can't draw a line between this film and those films. And I'm curious, what is it that draws you to a story or a personality that makes you say, I've, I need to make this film? Well, for me, the, there is a clear line between Fake It's a Real Actress and Kate Plays Christine, and that is embracing and being excited about the idea of performance in documentary, as I have sort of just went on about for a while. And uh, the excitement comes from the sort of uh, frictions and um, uh, explosions of meaning that can happen while you're, you're observing um, someone performing in what is a nonfiction setting. So specifically the opening of fake it surreal, they're yelling like in pain. It's a montage of close-ups of faces and that, that is performance of pain. It's also some real pain. It's a work. It's a shoot cut to actress. The way she's talking about her life is a work and a shoot. And then we just push that idea even further with Kate plays Christine and then Bisbee 17 and procession. I'm excited to answer your question directly. I get really excited when I can figure out ways that what I think are the natural tensions in the form of, of nonfiction cinema and documentary filmmaking, those natural tensions between what's staged and what's real, what's happening and what's conceived of, what's performed and what's arrived at. All these embedded tensions, which I, I just get so excited about them. And frankly, I get excited about them in fiction films as well, you know, the films of John Cassavetes or the films of Chantal Ackerman, the, the, the same pleasures, uh, arrive, I arrive at the same pleasures in, in those fiction, you know, the fiction films that those filmmakers have made as, as well as the, the, the nonfiction work of, of Wiseman or someone like that. Um, and that excitement then takes me into a space to think about, well, what can you do with this knowledge that you have? So for me, um, making a film like Katie with an eye, which was made before Fake It Surreal, I was very aware of her of of her teenage performance, Katie's performance as a teenager. Uh, my next move is like, well, I'm thinking a lot about performance. It's time to make my wrestling film, and that's what Fake It was. And then, you know, I've really thought a lot about performance. It's time to to you know think about that. And I just met Brandy Burry, who's the star of Actress. I wonder if she wants to make a project. And then wow, we really discovered a lot of things. And, and, and I've been obsessed with this Christine Chubbuck story for a really long time. Maybe, maybe we can make something that's really about acting with, with, uh, with the process of acting, but, it, but it's about, um, we use the sensational, awful story of Christine Chubbuck to get us to think deeply about the nature of storytelling. And then, and then from there and there, there. so to me, each film sort of reveals uh, possibilities for the next ideas. And then, and I get sort of excited about the, the combination of my concepts, what I'm thinking in my head, what I want to explore on a sort of conceptual filmmaking level. And then I get really excited about the real world implications of that. So by the time we get to procession, the most recent film, I'm very much excited. I, I, I've already sort of explored so much about what staging something means. Now I really want to do it to help someone that's a huge difference. Fake It Surreal isn't about helping those guys. It's about showing those guys. It's about depicting those guys. It's about using 
you know, using images of them to say something about pro wrestling, about artists, about working class America, about where I grew up, it's, you know, personal, inter- not personal, et cetera, et cetera. But it was never to help them. And that's something that's developed over the last few years is like, it, it makes me pretty uncomfortable to put a camera on someone if I'm not trying to think of them as a collaborator these days. And that's changed a lot. And so I get really excited about those ideas of continuing to push the language of what I think documentary filmmaking really is. And that has a formal component. It has a relationship component, my, meaning my relationship with the people on screen and my collaborators that I get to work with. And it has a, a story component, like what, and what are we going to, what are we looking at in the real world that we feel like urgently needs to be expressed? whether it be urgently because I love pro wrestling or be urgently because Catholic church continues to abuse children. And there's, there is a legacy of pain and trauma that men are dealing with these, especially, you know, the six men in procession they're still dealing with. So it's a combination of being excited by the content and excited by the forum. So that leads right to my next question, which is there's been this tremendous explosion of documentary in the last 10 years. What do you think the state of documentary is in 2022 and where do you think it's going? Well, I think there's a lot of talk about audiences, you know, having there's bigger audiences sort of with streaming and stuff. And, and, and I'm excited by that. I, you know, you're talking to someone who sold my last film to Netflix. So it literally, you know, can be seen by millions of people and it has been, and that's a thrilling idea. Um, I also very much worry about the limitations of some of the frameworks of of capitalism. I mean, look, like you can make uh, cinematic art outside of a capitalist model. You can. Uh, you can make personal work. You can make work that you share in, within communities. You can make it. There's all kinds of ways to be an artist that works in cinema. I'm interested in making movies for audiences, and so therefore I have to work within within a system that is, uh, you know, has never been fair to independent work. You know, um, there's eras where it's more or less fair, uh, or, or I wouldn't even say that. There's eras where, you know, independent cinema, documentary, art cinema can be seen by more people because of whatever sort of fluctuations are happening within the, the capitalist structures of, of filmmaking. Uh, we we happen to live in one of those eras now where if you if you have proven yourself, which you know, but I've made seven feature documentaries and all of which have gotten out there to some degree or another, some of which have gotten out there more than others. Um, and I've proven myself. And so I, you know, my last film was shortlisted for an Oscar. So therefore I can sort of operate within a within a very narrow awards type of economy where maybe some audiences might want to see what I'm doing, you know. Um, but that is very limited perspective, you know, uh, most Netflix documentaries or most Hulu, like most documentaries that, and I don't want to just single out Netflix, but most documentaries that are made for big time distributors, a lot of times they're very formulaic, you know, because they're trying to hit a certain spot. Um, they're driven by the algorithms and, and, and sort of, um, understanding that, that, uh, that computers basically have of audiences, and, and uh, that means that there's a lot of opportunity, but the, the opportunity is relatively narrow. And, and this is not a you know, surprise to the people who are working at places like Netflix and Hulu and Apple and all these other places that are providing this money, you know, but they're still looking for exceptional work and they're still looking for work that breaks the mold and redefines things. 
but you also have to have proven yourself. So it's a very complex thing right now. It's a very complex world. Um, I think nonfiction cinema remains the most vital form of filmmaking. Uh, I think we're just tapping the potential. There's a film that's out on HBO now that's an observational documentary made all in a, a VR space that's that's on H, that the HBO picked up from Sundance. There are films that are that are still exploring perspectives. There's a film uh, called I Didn't See You There, which is large, almost all completely shot from a wheelchair, from a from a person who's in a wheelchair's perspective. Uh, I bring those just those quick thing, you know, things I'm just thinking of just, just to think about the language is still being expanded. But it's but is it being expanded where the money is? Not necessarily. And so, you know, anyone who cares about the documentary community and cares about it remaining a vital uh, place where interesting good work is is um, made, we have to care about the younger filmmakers who are trying things, and we have to find ways to support them. And within the current structures, where most of the money comes from streaming platforms that are either you know guaranteed with a true crime series or something like that to get a whole lot of eyeballs or if they're talking about things like procession they're thinking this might win an award uh you know so it's either award or you know um, mass audience are the motivations that's a very very limited sort of idea of what makes a good movie you know i i just continue to hope that young filmmakers who are innovating in a way that that i don't even understand as a filmmaker who's been doing this for a couple decades that i don't even understand now um it's one of my favorite things about teaching is that I can see, you know, I can see the ideas that are coming from younger people who want to try to push the form in different directions. And we just have to find ways to support them. And that, that's the only, you know, the, it is a form of filmmaking that goes back to Flaherty, that goes back even before Flaherty, in fact, uh, where the idea of what it means to represent truth on screen has always been a complex question. And the great filmmakers for a hundred years, you know, it's a hundred years since Nanook of the North, a very complex and very strange film and very beautiful, very weird, very horrible uh, piece of um, cinema. Also one of the most beautiful films ever made at the same time. It's been a hundred years since that film came out and we, we're still battling the complexities that that film revealed. And we have to listen to younger people who can tell us, well, here's the new way to do it. Here's the new way to battle that. Here's the new way to fight that fight. Here's the new way to do something with that. And I'm just trying to find any ways I can to support younger people making films. So I have to dig in on the Netflix part because I'm, I'm wondering if you're worried about this environment where new ideas are mined by reverse engineering audience data. And then, then there's the notion of the Netflix approved camera. Is that too much power being concentrated in a vehicle that might actually start to, I think you mentioned kind of, it's a narrowing of the space, but it makes me wonder, could a film like Fake It So Real even emerge today? I pre- yeah, I appreciate that question. I mean, it's, I have, I, I get, I, I love talking about this because for one, I mean, Fake It So Real didn't emerge in any traditional way. Like it's not a film that would be on Netflix now, was on Netflix then. It did not find, I mean, it did play on a very primordial version of Hulu for a while. And and the distributor Factory 25 is still putting out challenging, interesting personal work today. Um, so it's it to say, you know, Fake It So Real didn't emerge. The fact that we're still talking about it 
this many years later is probably more benefit for the fact that my other films emerged a little bit more and they, and each film got a little bit bigger of an audience, but that's still a microscopic audience compared to say, you know, what Netflix quote unquote needs for their streaming platform, which we all have heard the news about how complex it is to keep subscribers and what it means to actually be a, a, a big time streamer and what that all means. I mean, they're, they're running an economic model that is, is, is problematic in and of itself. And so, you know, uh, fake it so real would have never been there. And I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I, I, to me, it's like, that wasn't the point, you know, without uh, uh, festivals like Trufos, which is where we premiered and, uh, festivals like CPH Docs in Copenhagen, or and then eventually my film started playing at Sundance and and and, and other festivals like that. You know, uh, without those festivals, none of these films would have quote, quote unquote gotten out there. And you could still even argue what does gotten out there mean, right? So, I think that sort of independent work is still being made. It is, and it and and frankly, the formulaic work has also always been made. You're right to point out though that. There is something a little creepy about the sort of uh, driven by algorithm way of the the Netflix approval process and the cameras and the you know story beats and all this other stuff. But it's almost natural to the the way that that a company like that is going to be set up. It doesn't mean you know that they're not interested in uh, in, in independent work. It's just you know that independent work is never going to get them the viewers that the formulaic work is going to get them. Do I want them to push more independent work and maybe a little bit less formulaic work? Yes, I do. I definitely do. But I'm from this incredibly unique uh, perspective of having my film, having just gone through the whole cycle. I know the people who work at Netflix are fighting every day from the top level executives that I, you know, that I was able to talk to, you know, not the top, top, top. I never talked to those people, but the people that I was working with, they, they hunger for challenging work that also works on their platform. They also know where their bread is buttered. So it's, it's a capitalist art form. And, and so therefore you're going to have every single era is going to have frustration built in for, for artists, you know, with respect to formulas that quote unquote work and independent voices and independent thinking that quote unquote doesn't work. What we all know, what people who know who make films, what people who fund films that are more challenging and what audiences know is it is the independent thinkers. It is the filmmakers who are innovating that will always rise to the top. And it's, you know, one of the worst things I can see a filmmaker do is be like, I've innovated, but now I'm going to stop innovating. And now I'm going to sell out and make a couple true crime things. I, I get it. You got to pay the bills. I would never fault anybody for taking a paycheck, but we need people still fighting the good fight of, of uh, making, you know, films that, that uh, go outside of what the, the, the algorithm might tell them is a good story structure, you know? Um, and I think the highest, like what was, I was so proud about procession because we made, we sold the film to Netflix after it was made. We made zero compromises in the making of that film. And it, it's every bit the film that I wanted to be. And it's every bit the film that they felt they, they needed to have on their platform. 
And, but that's an incredibly privileged place to be. And I recognize that because that it took me a long time of working, making zero money for zero dollars for zero budget, like fake it so real, uh, to be able to get to the point where I can, I can even, you know, get the chance to find that kind of platform. And, and that's not very sustainable for most people. I, I, you know, most documentary filmmakers are either rich and they have, um, some sort of family money that allows them to take the risks or a, a few are like me, which even though I have a family, I have two teenagers now and I have a you know very supportive uh, partner, my wife and she, Deanna, she's amazing, but I, I just never had money. So being scrappy and I've gotten, we've gotten plenty of support from family, you know, more than, than I would have ever imagined, you know, just because of me growing up with no money. But I never needed money because I never had it. Fake It So Real was made for literally zero dollars. I mean, I think I think it, I mean I honestly think it costs like three thousand total dollars to make that film. That was not made to be picked up by Netflix. It wasn't made to be, but it was made to continue to try to figure out how I wanted to make a film, and it was made for audiences as weirdly um, maybe uh, oxymoronic as that sounds. Like didn't make it for the big audiences, but definitely made it to connect with audiences. And that's why I'm, I'm super proud. We're still talking about it today. So let me wrap this up by asking now you're a professor. And to me, that's kind of like being a VC in the realm of future artists. Like, what do you see in your students today and where do you think they're going? What does that mean for the next 10 years? Well, you know, I have the privilege of uh, teaching journalism students. So I get, I, I'm not teaching in a film school per se, you know, we're, we're in a journalism program and I, and I'm sort of the weirdo art guy in the, in the journalism department, which I'm very, very, very proud to, to hold that position. Um, I, my students, you know, are, are, are engaging, they're dealing with political realities. They're, if they're, you know, if they're women or if they're trans uh, students, they're dealing with their rights being challenged and taken away. If they're black students, they're dealing with that every day of their lives. Um, they're dealing with all kinds of political realities and they want to make this world a better place and they want to fight for that. When we talk, I think they see that just putting, taking a camera out and pointing it at something, I don't know. And this is no disrespect to the observational mode of filmmaking. I think it's the building block of all great films is observation. But just taking a camera out and filming something, you could do that and post it to Instagram. Like you could, you know, we've seen films of, of police brutality and murder being filmed and changing the world. You know, th those are documents, those are documentaries. But I think this generation really sees that, uh, you know, using all language of, of cinema takes you to a different place. And they're not precious about it, even though they're journalism students, even though they come from this sort of idealistic perspective that they want to make the world a better place. They, they know that they can use any tool at their disposal to try to get to some deeper truths and try to show what, what really makes the world tick, right? That's an enormously powerful thing. Uh, they, it, is a, it is a generation with a lot less preconceptions about what makes something great. And, and they also know it's easy to record. It's easy to make a beautiful image. It's easy to color correct something and make it pretty. Uh, to make something relevant and powerful and meaningful, you got to do something else. Well, Robert, this has been an amazing conversation. You gave us so much more than um, I thought we might get at the outset. Um, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to uh, share in terms of a current project that you want people to be on the lookout for? 
Well, procession, you can see, thank you so much um, for, for asking and thanks for giving me the time to talk about this stuff. Obviously it's, um, you know, it's my, my life and think about it all kinds of ways. Um, so I appreciate the time and the space, but uh, yeah, I mean, procession, you can still see on Netflix. Uh, it, it, it came out last year where we're about to come up on Telluride 2022 and our pr film premiered at Telluride 2021 um, so it's been out for, a, you know, approaching a year now and um, people are still discovering it all the time. Uh, yeah. And we're, we're starting to work on some different projects. Um, I'm also an editor who edits some fiction films and working on some, some stuff there, but uh, yeah, just appreciate the space. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much. And there you have it, Robert Green. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Robert's films are all over the place. You can see Fake It So Real on several services, including Amazon Prime. You can see Procession on Netflix. I also highly recommend Green's Katie with an Eye. It's a raw coming-of-age doc that is both sly and powerful. That's all for now. Stay tuned for more great conversations with Shalise Haas and Zachary Levy. By the way, if there's a film you think I should see, let me know at TalkingDocumentary at gmail.com. I'm always looking for hidden gems, so let me know what you're watching. Until next time, I'll talk to you later.